To recap where we've been, this is kind of like part two of this concept we looked at and we saw in the New Testament, the world. We talked a lot about this last week and we're kind of picking up where we left off in a way. But to recap, uh, what this series has been claiming this entire time is that there are these unseen forces in our lives. Uh, the devil, the flesh, and the world is what the New Testament refers to them as. And their goal is to disrupt our faith, to pull us away from God, to get us off track. Uh, and the strategy looks like this. The lies of the devil lead to disordered desires uh, within us. Remember we said we have desires and we have natural urges and those are fine, but then there's disordered ones. We prioritize the wrong things. That's what we refer to as the flesh. The lies of the devil lead to disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society. And that's the world. That's the concept that we introduced and talked about last week. We saw that the term that scripture uses to refer to the world is, is a reference to social norms that are against the will of God. We see that things that were wrong, that everybody understood to be wrong, are now deemed to be right, and even things that were right can now be uh, villainized and, and judged and, as wrong. It's the process and the, this phenomenon we see of normalizing and justifying practices that are contrary to the way of Jesus. Maybe one of the most obvious and glaring examples of how this has worked out in our history is the example of chattel slavery in America, owning African slaves as property. This was something that was legal, it was widespread, it was very, very popular, as I'm sure most of you know. It's an uncomfortable part of our history that a lot of us don't wish to talk about, but it's a great example of how the influence of the world just makes everybody go along with something that is very obviously not honoring to the way of Christ. It made sense economically. It benefited a wealthy majority. And so we overlooked the moral problems and we justified it by saying things like, well, slaves are not really fully human. They don't really have the same rights as the rest of us. Even Christians were involved in this process and justified it by Going to New Testament scriptures, the book of Philemon. Hey, here was this slave who ran away, and Paul didn't say, yeah, he should run away. He said, go back and be a good slave. He studied Philemon, so you know there's more to that story. But this was one of the justifications that Christians said, see, it's fine, it's fine. And it happened for a long time. To be fair, not everybody thought it was okay, and not everybody participated in it. But to be fair, a lot of people did. And we need to acknowledge that. It was actually Christian abolitionists who were some of the first to speak out against the practice and move toward creating laws that banned slavery in the UK and then in the United States. This is an example of the world at work. The question of how to live as a Christian in a world where ungodly practices become normalized has challenged Christians from the beginning, long before our nation's infancy. And it's something that continues to challenge us today. How do we live in a world that does not always believe what we believe or honor the Lord, follow the ways of Jesus the way that we try to? There are usually two responses that Christians will take, two approaches of how to answer that question. What are we supposed to do? The first one is we separate ourselves. Christians, let's just get away from the world as far away as possible. Let's create an, our own sub subculture. In doing so, a lot of times we vilify the world. It's all bad. Let's get into the ark and let's just kind of huddle together. On the other end, the other approach is to assimilate, to become like the culture, to 
go along with it, participate, play ball. A lot of times that leads to compromising, and then the values of the world become our values, and we don't even always realize it. You hear that those are your two options. You may identify as I'm talking about this now. I tend to lean more this way. Or you might say, oh, I tend to lean more this way. These are not completely flawed strategies. I'm not here to say, don't, don't. I'm just kind of pointing out, this is sort of what Christians do. And they're popular because they're effective. They're ways of you know, finding your people or just getting along and getting through your week. But something that Tim Keller points out with these two very popular options is one of the reasons they're so popular is because they're effective ways of holding on to power. They don't just answer the question, how is a Christian to be faithful in society? But there's a little caveat or like addendum that goes along with that while still maintaining power. The Christians who separate, they say, we have to create our own community. We have to have a voice. We need the moral majority. There's power in numbers. We need the strength of the polls. That's strategy for having power, holding on to your faith. The other direction, you hold on to power by embracing the world. You accept the cultural elites. Otherwise, you lose your seat at the table. You don't have a voice among the people of the world. You become ostracized. You don't have power and influence. Those two methods are popular because they go along with this assumption that we need to retain power in society. But what if we took away that assumption? What if we said, like, unattach the addendum? Don't worry about power. I saw this movie one time. It's a secular movie, by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, and this guy goes into a bar. He puts a bunch of eggs on the table. And he says, I'll give anyone $1,000 if they can figure out a way to balance the egg on its end. Everybody's like, okay, I want to earn that $1,000. Surely, you know, if I, I have a flat enough surface, they weren't holding the plate like I am, but, you know, they were trying to balance the egg. And they were you know, just very, very carefully, I thought we could do this. And everybody tries, and they do it for a while, and they realize, we can't do this. It's impossible. You can't do it. He says, it's not impossible. And they said, all right, well, then show us how to do it. He says, here you go. That's how you do it. And they said, well, you're cheating. You didn't say that the egg could crack. He said, I didn't say you couldn't crack the egg. You assumed that the egg had to remain intact. It is possible if you take away the assumption. In the same way, here, I'll put this here to remind us. In the same way, if you take away the assumption that in order, the, the way to get along as a Christian in society while still retaining power then you get a better option. Then we remind ourselves that the way of Jesus is the way of the broken. The way of Jesus is the way of the servant. Remember he told his disciples, whoever wants to be great among you must become your servant, slave of all. What if we remember that the way of Jesus is the way of the outcast, the one who was shamed? Isaiah 53 describes this suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. What if we remember that the way of Jesus was the way of the crucified, the one who gave up his power, set aside his seat at the table, his place with the Father in heaven, and came down and became a human. And even while doing that, he gave away all of his 
rights and powers as a human and submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. And when we remember that Jesus said, you are actually blessed when people insult you or persecute you or say false evil against you because of him, we remember that we have this third option. And it doesn't depend on whether or not we retain power in society. The early church, the church of the first century, the church that we read about in the New Testament, uh, in Asia Minor, asked the same question. How should we live in the world with the persuasive influence of the world and still not lose our faith? And the Apostle Peter writes them a letter, and he gives them a description of what this third option looks like. And this is part of what he tells them. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, the non-believers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Joseph, you can leave that slide up there for a minute. I'm going to talk about this. You'll notice that he refers to them as foreigners and exiles. Maybe you've been a foreigner, a different person in a new situation all different ways that this can take place. But I think most of us like to be comfortable where we are. We like to know our way around. We like to speak the language. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to miss out. I was hanging around with uh, Justin and Trish Garza, people who were members of this church. They moved uh, up to Washington State back in July. We got to spend time with them over the holidays. And we were asking them, they'd only lived there uh, for, what, five months? They'd only been in their house for one month? We kept asking them questions like, okay, so where's, the, where's, the, where's your favorite coffee shop? They're like, I don't know. We're still new here. We, we haven't figured that out yet. Oh, okay. They live near a lake. We're like, hey, do they do jet skiing on this lake in the summertime? And they're like, again, we don't know. <laughs> we're, we're new here. We're foreigners. We haven't figured things out yet. But they will. They'll adjust and they'll adapt. It's, it's natural for us to do that. But Peter is not writing to geographical foreigners. He's not saying, you guys are new to the area. He's saying, you're spiritual foreigners. You stood out for being different. You practice differently. You have a different set of values than the world around you. That's your identity. Think of yourself as a foreigner. And he refers to them as exiles, too. And that's a loaded term if you have a Jewish history, which a lot of these folks did. It refers back to the time in Israel's history when they lost power. Their city was completely overtaken. The temple of Yahweh was destroyed. They were taken into a foreign land to live as powerless minorities. But what does God tell them to do once they get there through the prophet Jeremiah? He does not say, you need to get the power back by banding together. He does not tell them, you need to assimilate and take on the culture's beliefs and practices as your own. What he tells them is similar to what Peter says to the first century Christians. Jeremiah 29, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried, I carried, interestingly, to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you should do. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Get comfortable. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. 
That's what God's exiles should do. Live among the people. Pray for the people. Peter puts it like this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You can leave that up there again, Joseph, until the next thing. Because this, this is an important verse. There's a lot of good stuff here for us to take to heart. First he says, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And what's the name of this series? Enemies of the soul. We've talked about the devil, the flesh, and the world. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Well, that sounds like the flesh that we're talking about. He also tells them, don't get sucked in. Though the world, the other third enemy of the soul, though the world around you participates in evil practices, and though they disregard the will of God, and they might even deny the existence of God altogether, and your, the society, the world around you might even redefine good as evil and evil as good, abstain. Don't get sucked in. Don't go along with it. Don't participate in that. Instead, you live the way of Christ. Jesus talks about shining our light before others so that they can glorify God. Similar to what Peter says here. He says, live the way of Christ that is so good, so lovely, so winsome, and so authentic, it just kind of speaks for itself. And in doing so, you are providing the world an attractive alternative. I've got a friend who's, uh, when his daughter was in eighth grade, she was not allowed to have a cell phone. <gasps> Gasp! Not, it's kind of rare. Most eighth grade students do have their own cell phone. They have their device, they have you know, social media and access, their own, own number. I don't know how many of them are paying for it, but uh, it's rare that a young person has their own, uh, does not have their own device when they're in eighth grade. But my friend's daughter did. And by the way, side note, this is a little bit of a soapbox. I knew I was going to say this. It's actually written in my notes. Um, I spend a lot of time with young people. I know a lot about what's going on in youth culture. I have seen, I would estimate that maybe the number one way that young people are influenced by the world is through these screens. It's a window into everything. If there's not supervision, if there's not oversight, if there's not filters, if there's not an adult in their life, preferably a faithful Christian adult, to help interpret and shield and protect and guide, it's, it's kind of a free-for-all. I heard one person describe it like this. Uh, you would not take your eight or nine-year-old child, Eleanor, in my case, you would not get, put him on a BART, send him into San Francisco and say, hey, um, you know, go figure it out. Go see what you see. Have a great day. Find your way back. We'll be here. We'd not do that, of course. That does not make sense. But that's kind of what we do with our kids. Like just handing them a phone and saying, hey, go, go figure it out. Ugh. I could say a lot more about this, but I'll step off the soapbox for now. This is not the point of the story, anyway. This just happens to be a young person who did not have their own device, but they made friends with somebody who did, and the friend sent this person a message after they'd been friends for about six months. Uh, the, the girl who did have a phone sent a message to the girl who did not have a phone, and if you're wondering, well, how did she send her a message if the girl didn't have a phone? She sent it to her parents' phone. Good question. Glad you asked. Uh, and I wanted to read you what that text said. I think it has a lot of connections with the, what we're hearing from Peter this morning. 
The friend said this, in these past few months, this is real, I'm not making this up, in these past few months, I've made more memories with you than any of my other friends. When I'm with others, all we do is make TikToks and stuff, and there hasn't been one time with you where I haven't had fun. I've sung to Sophia the first, I've run around the yard in a pop-up thingy, I helped make a homemade slip and slide, I walked to go get a couch barefoot, I participated in a hair-burning ritual, I don't know what that is. She says, no matter what we do, I always seem to make a memory with you. And I just wanted to thank you because I'm so glad that I got the chance to know you and to make memories that might last a lifetime. I think that's kind of like the vision that Peter is casting here. A vision of inviting people into an attractive alternative. This young lady who wrote the text, uh, she'd experienced what the world was offering. And it was fine. I mean, she enjoyed her time with her friends, like, staring at each other's phones. And, like, there's a reason it's so popular. There's a reason it's a thing. She just didn't know that there was an alternative out there until she met this new friend. She reflected on it, and she was grateful for the attractive alternative that she had been provided with. As Christians, don't we have an attractive alternative to provide the world? Man, I would say we have the most attractive alternative. Maybe we don't know it. Maybe we don't realize it. And maybe we're not sure how to articulate it sometimes. But, oh, that's the call. Just to say, sure, the world is going to, it's going to feel right. It's going to feel fine. It's going to be what we're used to. But, oh, if you can discover there's something else, there's a different way to live. Being in Christ is life-giving. It's life-changing. The question for us to reflect on this morning is, do people find that when they encounter us? Or do we look like everybody else? They have a relationship with us. Are they just going to be staring at their phones like everybody else? Or do they discover this attractive alternative? I thought this would be a good time to recap the four Fs. This is something I stole from Jeff Walling, but it stuck with me. And I know I've mentioned it before. This is one of those screens you may want to uh, take a photo with. See, I'm not against phones. Phones are great. But if you're in Christ, you have the four F's. You have forgiveness of sin. You have a father who loves you. You have a family who can't get rid of you. And you have, I forgot the last one, future that is secure. You are in Christ. You have forgiveness of sin. Remember a few weeks ago where we mustered up the courage to write down things that were in our, in our souls that we're in the dark that we didn't want to share with people, but we did. We wrote them down. We let somebody else read them, and we said, hey, there's forgiveness in Christ because of these. And we ripped them up, and we said, that's not how we want to live anymore. That's not how we want to be remembered. We don't want to carry the shame that goes along with that. We want that forgiveness of sin. We claim that in Christ. That's the first F. We have a Father who loves us. We have reconciliation with the God that we turned away from to chase after sin and idols and desires of the flesh, and just going with the current of whatever the world was doing. We have reconciliation. And the way Jesus describes it, when we come back to this Father who loves us, He doesn't go, yeah, I'm glad you're back. you got some chores waiting for you. He sees us coming, and He runs out to us, and He embraces us, and He restores us. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a Father who loves us. We have a family, I think I said, that can't get rid of you. That's true. But it's a family you'll never lose. P. 
people who have moved to this area and have found this congregation. There are people who have moved from this congregation to other areas and have found people that they can call brothers and sisters in Christ. They found the four F's, too. You have this worldwide, universal family. Not just now, but it stretches back across time and into the future. It's this, this amazing thing. This is Jesus' plan, his idea. You read John 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's Jesus' hope for the church. I'm leaving, but here's what I hope happens. Here's what I hope you guys do. Church has its history of messing things up. But Jesus said, this is how it's going to be. This is the family. This is my body. We have forgiveness of sins. We have a Father who loves us. We have a family that we can never lose. And we have a future that is secure. A lot of stuff's going to happen in this life. Some of it's going to be pleasant. Some of it's going to be unpleasant. Some of it's going to be unpleasant because of my faith. Because of the choices that I'm making to be like Christ. But I know where I'm going beyond this life. It's secure for me. I'm not worried. And a lot of people just don't know that there's a better offer out there. They don't know about the four F's. And like I said, will they find it if they find us? I was talking with Doug and Therese Matkins, some other former members who moved to another place but come back and visit from time to time. And we were talking about this series, and I said, man, every time I get up to preach, there's so much more I want to say. We just kind of scratched the surface with this. And I could see sometimes on your faces, too. But yeah, but what about this? And yeah, but what about this? And wow, oh, can't cover it all. This is kind of an ongoing, more of an ongoing conversation than a uh, prescription that'll just make it all better. But I was talking with them about um, the world and how what we're saying is that the antidote for the influence of the world is the church, the community of Christians that we connect ourselves to that are supposed to cultivate and offer this attractive alternative. The church is the antidote to the world. Is, is that what you're saying? Skeptical mind might wonder. Well, what about all the problems with the church? What about all the ugly people in the church? Ugly hearts, I mean, not ugly appearances. That's a good question. It's true the church is not perfect. It's true that the church, like our nation, has a stained history that we have to acknowledge. It's true that at times, instead of presenting the gospel message, we have presented an unattractive alternative to the world that makes people go, nope, never mind, I'm doing better over here. I have two responses to that. I have at least two responses, but two that I'll share with you right now. One, part of the reason that Christians can read the same Bible, walk away with different conclusions about what God wants, and that's maybe one of the sources of all the, the fighting and the splitting and the divisions, and then, yes, this church, but not this church. Yes, these Christians, but not those Christians. One of the reasons for that is because we have different Bible interpretation methods. Many Christians don't even realize that they have a Bible interpretation method, and they don't see how others could interpret Scripture any way than the way that they've always known their whole life. That's a very common thing. So, in an attempt to try to recognize this and to help us better understand Scripture and let it transform our lives, the Tri-Valley Church, uh, we are offering a Bible interpretation class that is going to start uh, on March 12th. It's going to be Sunday mornings at 9.30. And uh, again, it's not a magic cure for uh, our division. It's not going to 
bring everybody on the same page right away. But what I hope it will do is equip us with better tools for understanding God's Word. And even if you've lived your whole life and you've dwelled deeply in the Scriptures and you're like, I love the Scriptures, I understand them, I, I, I don't need to re-approach it, I think it's going to give you a richer and deeper appreciation for what is in the text. Kind of like this. Let's say you, you travel to a famous foreign city like Rome and you see the sights and you're like, wow, this is the famous Colosseum and oh, there's the Trevi Fountain and oh, look at this amazing view. You can love it and you can soak it up. You can appreciate it. You can be glad that you were there. But think about that same trip. Let's say you go with a tour group. And there's a guide there that's telling you some of the, the history behind these sites. And you're like, wow, I already love this. But now I'm, I'm getting some backgrounds and it's bringing it to life. It's helping me understand it. It's helping me interact with it more. It's kind of what this class may do. Just give you some tools, give you some information to help you love Scripture even more. I think it's a good thing. So I encourage you, I invite you, join us. Sunday mornings at 9.30 starting on March 12th. The second thing that I, I'll respond to with like, yeah, but isn't the church full of a bunch of broken people? Yeah, it is. Uh, and sometimes it can get very confusing about what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. I was, we were worshiping earlier and the song, The Greatest Commands, came on. And I, I was in the back and I was looking at the screen. And I know this song, but I wrote the, the, the words got smaller and smaller and smaller. Did you guys notice that? Because there's four parts, and we're singing, we're singing different parts. And they start out big, and it's like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to say. God is love. God is love. Yeah, love one another and all this. And then, oh, there's more. Okay. And now the, they're harder to see. And the, the letters are harder to make out. And then it's filling the whole screen, and there's all this stuff. And it's like, ah, I'm lost. And they're singing different parts. And I'm, maybe I'm confused. Kind of like that. But we know what the song is, right? It's God is love. <laughs> you go back to where you started. God is love. First John tells us. God loved us. Let's love others. Maybe it's boil it down to that. If you get confused, if you get lost, can't read the little letters, go back to the start. So that's what I'm going to do this morning as we end. We want to live the truth. If we want to live no lies, like we've been saying, and we believe that truth with a capital T comes from Jesus, because that's what he tells us. John chapter 8, he says, If you hold to my teaching, then you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Maybe we need to just go back to the feet of Jesus, listen to his heart, and listen to his words. And we'll navigate the world we live in. We'll do our best to be the attractive alternative that the church was designed to be. We'll own up to our mistakes. We'll, we'll make adjustments as we go. But sometimes it's just good to go back to the feet of Jesus. So as we close out this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me because I'm just going to read some of the words of Jesus over you. These are the words from the mouth of Jesus, the Christ who gave his life. And I, I'm asking you to stand because I want you to receive these words as a kind of commissioning, as a kind of like, here we are. We're the people of God. We care what Jesus says. We want to do what Jesus calls us to do. So here are some of the things that Jesus reminds us and calls us to. Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, 
thrown into a fire and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He goes on to say, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And then this, in John 17, Jesus is praying. So he's talking directly to God the Father, but he's talking about his followers. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you that though they were spoken so long ago, we can hear them today. We hear them in our ears. We hear them in our hearts. We ask that you help remind us of the commission of Jesus, the commands that come from you to love one another, to be like Jesus, to call the world to an attractive alternative, to be the light and the salt of the world. I'm grateful for this congregation full of people who do this in so many different ways. Use our gifts, use our personalities, Use what we bring before you to offer for your glory and for your purposes, Lord. May that light shine in the darkness, glorify you, and bless those around us. Thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.